At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Uber revealing disturbing new data on sexual assaults. This is unacceptable to be zero. A blowout jobs report, the U.S. economy creating greater than 260,000 new jobs in November. Markets are higher. The bottom line is that the economy is strong. And gaming's big future with the CEO of Activision Blizzard. I look at our business and I just see, you know, today we have roughly 350 million customers in 190 countries. There is not a good reason why that number shouldn't be a billion in the next five years. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Friday, December 6, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by Joe in three, two, one. His mic is here. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Cook. Andrew's off today uh, in studio for the remainder of the show. Jason Trinnert, uh, Strategus Research Partners Chairman. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? It's the first Friday of the month. Again, Jobs Friday. This morning, the Labor Department released the number of American jobs created in November as well as the latest unemployment number. If you watch Squawk Box, you know that our coverage of the report spans the better part of an hour. And if you listen to this podcast, you know that we distill that hour into a few minutes of key content. CNBC's Ilan Mui was live at a very busy Labor Department abuzz with reporters. It's just hard for me to believe that those other organizations don't let the world leader in businesses get the information out first and, and then start talking. She broke the numbers for us. Non-farm payrolls rose by 266,000 jobs in November. Now, there was strong hiring across the board. Strong hiring and an overall strong report. J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Oksana Aronoff is optimistic. Great, strong number. The bottom line is that the economy is strong. And so is former Congressional Budget Office Director Doug Holtz-Eakin. The numbers in the report, which are simply spectacular. This is really a, a, a report everyone should be thrilled with. Joe Kernan and CNBC's economics reporter Steve Leisman agreed that the president should also find optimism here. I mean, this is a good number for re-election. It's uh, a good it, number for re-election. But Andy Green from the Center for American Progress called for some perspective, the humanity behind those numbers. People are working longer because they yeah. don't have the resources retired. I'm just not seeing the optimism. Obviously, there's good numbers today, but I remain concerned when you actually talk to ordinary working families out in a lot of left-behind communities, they're still hurting. The report was strong on nearly every front, which means, as our guest host Jason Trenner pointed out, President Trump's posture in the trade talks between the U.S. and China might shift accordingly. One thing I would just wonder, is this is certainly good for trade negotiations, I would argue, for the right. United States, right? And the big metric making headlines from today's report, the unemployment rate. We're back to 3.5 percent. That is the lowest level of joblessness in 50 years. And one more good sign before we move on. Markets are higher. After the numbers crossed the wires, the indicated open for the markets jumped higher. 
Thursday night, Uber released a report disclosing the number of sexual assaults, murders, and crash-related fatalities involving its own rides between 2017 and 2018. Uber revealed nearly 6,000 reports of sexual abuse in that time. Over 3,000 of those occurred last year, which alarmingly is down 16% from the 2017 number. The company outlined steps it's taking to counter the problems, including making additional safety hires, boosting the rigor of driver background checks, adding an emergency button on the app, and checking in with passengers if the app detects an unexpected long stop during a trip. In an interview with NBC News, Uber's chief legal officer, Tony West, said the numbers are jarring and hard to digest but they weren't surprising. I'm not surprised, and I'm not surprised because sexual violence is just much more pervasive in society than I think most people realize. We hope to see and hope to learn a number of things. I think first, we want to raise awareness. The other thing we want to show is that we're developing best practices. Uber CEO Derek Hasushahi weighed in via Twitter, calling the safety report an important step forward. Here's our team digesting this news. This one, uh, I saw it last night, I was like, Did you think of those? I thought the numbers were global. It's not. I I did, too. It's just U.S. Uber says it's received more than 3,000 reports of sexual assault. 3,000. But let's point out there are 1.3 billion rides in the U.S. last year. Uh, In its first biennial uh, safety report, the company says that it was down 16 percent from a year earlier and details efforts for further safety improvements. We have kids, obviously. Teenage daughters and stuff and son that that, that are on Uber. The 3,000 is a big number. It does help to mention the 1.3 billion. Yeah, and if you dig into that, 235 of them were rapes, and there were 19 physical assaults that ended in death. So that's when you start looking at those things and realizing that's what's happening in the United States. And you you can control the background on the drivers, I guess. But some of this is going the other way. This is passengers. You're picking up some unsavory uh, passengers. And they... they reported this themselves, though, I they think, did. right? This was and so, but Lyft, yeah, they did. I'm not sure I've reported it. Lyft has been an issue because there have been women who have been suing the company because they have been sexually assaulted. And I think there were something so, like 34 or 35 women who just sued them. So obviously it's a problem that happens there. The bigger question is, I guess, what happens if you were to compare that to existing taxi companies? Right. What are the rates that would go with some of those? Are there better background checks there or not? And again, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. But you put it into context with 1.3 billion rides. The scariest thing is you got to have the guy say your name. Got to have him say your name. Oh, absolutely. Got to have him say your name. So that you know, he, you know he's actually you know the Uber he's or Lyft the, driver. Otherwise, it's just like just a license. A car. For, it's like the worst thing in the world. It's like every scary yeah, thing you've right. ever thought of. Every Which is you know, what happened down in... I know. Some groups say that those numbers are probably underreported because sexual assaults tend right. to be underreported. Uh, Uber itself said that by taking these steps and making it so public, letting people know that they are going to be tracking it closely, you will probably see an increase in the number of reports that happened this year yeah. as the underreporting kind of is made up for. Believe me, you can't stick two strangers together without one of them, you know. Obviously, it's, it's a small it's number. It's terrifying. But, yeah. it, it, it's a small number t- relative right. to but it. But again, when you are using, there are women who say they are right. very much on guard every time you get You're putting yourself cars. into that And the big position. question has been, how, how rigorous are the background checks? Now, I know that Uber has lots of drivers who they knock out every year. I think three-quarters of the number of the drivers that they knock out are because of not being able to pass driving steps. It is criminal background checks that make right. it for another It should not be part of the cost of doing business. We should, we should not just write it off. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like this no. is unacceptable. Right. It should be zero. Really? Yes. 
Next on Squawk Pod, the latest in Tesla chief Elon Musk's defamation trial set to head to the jury today. And later on in the pod, Bobby Kotick, the video game CEO behind Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Candy Crush, and more on the two billion active gamers around the world and how that number will grow. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Three, this is Squawk two, Pod. Here's one, Becky, Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. Jurors expected to begin deliberating in the Elon Musk defamation trial this morning. Jane Wells joins us. She's got more on that front. And Jane, I have been following your Twitter account on everything <laughs> you've sent out on this. You got me. Tell me, what's going on? It, 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 it's, uh, well, j- final arguments begin at nine. Maybe we'll have a decision today. What's going to be interesting is how much the judge is going to be vigilant about focusing on the tweets where Musk calls Unsworth a pedo guy and how much he'll let in about these other emails to BuzzFeed where Musk calls him a child rapist. Those were only allowed in as to Musk's state of mind. Did he really mean pedo guy as an insult or as a pedophile? But the defamation claim is only on the tweets. Expect the judge to be very clear with the jurors about the difference between the tweets and everything else. Now, pretty much all of yesterday was taken up by testimony from Vernon Unsworth. The cave expert was cross-examined by Elon Musk lawyers who tried to show that Unsworth didn't suffer at all from being called a pedo guy. In fact, quite the opposite. They showed the jury pictures of him being honored by the prime minister at 10 Downing Street in the U.K. and the government of Thailand. Why would they honor anyone they thought might be a pedophile? Elon Musk not in court. He's only been in court for his own testimony. Is he going to return for the jury decision? Hmm. Federal judge in the case, Stephen Wilson, has been pretty cranky with both lawyers trying to keep him on track. He seems especially perturbed by Unsworth's attorney, L. Lynn Wood, this sort of folksy uh, lawyer from Atlanta. Turns out Wood has had quite a career. Most notably, he represented Richard Jewell, who was wrongfully accused of the Olympics uh, bombing in Atlanta in 1996. In fact, there's a movie coming out from Clint Eastwood about Richard Jewell and playing Ellen Wood, not John Hamm there, will be Oscar winner Sam Rockwell, proving that everything in Hollywood ends up in a movie, even somebody involved in the Elon Musk trial. Don't gloss over that Clint's still directing. Jane, I mean, did, did you see the mule? I mean, he's 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 like a, he, he, I don't know. He, he, he's something. got it. He's got it. Ninety years old. Mind he's eternal. Is, yeah, and his mind is uh, sharp. Yeah, he's eighty-nine still. Yeah, it's still eighty-nine. But I, I just, you know, all of our heroes someday won't be with us any longer. That's going to be a tough one. Um, for Hackman, that's going to be a tough. Hackman's the same yeah. age. I think. When Burton Reynolds passed away, right. I was. I, could, I don't I know why. Know I, do. I, I don't want to be maudlin. I'm sorry, yeah. Jane, but yeah, I, ju- I think. I mean, I, wow. I think I just think it's funny. You know, how does these? How did this fall in your lap? This uh, get Jane Wells on that. It's just. I just think it's weird. Um, bacon. I because I, I don't love see. It. I don't see the connection. Anything bacon is you pot. A she lot covered of the OJ trial. OJ. Yeah, that's right. That's why. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Elon Musk smoked a blunt. Yes, uh, he Joe did that, Rogan. too. Well, I was thinking about that, too, that, that in this day and age, I mean, the president has called people, well, never a pedo, but he throws, you know, 
He throws what, what he calls the mini Mike Bloomberg. I mean, so in this no. day and age, is it Twitter or... You can't call somebody a pedophile. Uh, I know, but, but all of our standards are lower now, aren't they? Or is it Twitter? Well, also, there's a key difference. Everyone the president has insulted is a public figure, okay. and the bar is much higher in that case. Uh, Vernon Unsworth has been ruled a private figure by the judge. Well, that's interesting interesting? because Elon Musk's take has been that this guy took him on first and said nasty things, told him where to stick his submarine, and he assumed he didn't take that literally. But I forgot about the standards between a private citizen and a public one. So Uh, much higher bar. In fact, Musk tried to have him considered a public figure because he's now a public figure, but he failed. But here's what's interesting. Musk apologized to Unsworth from the stand. Unsworth yesterday refused to apologize for saying stick it where it hurts. He still calls it a PR stunt. He doesn't think Elon Musk is cold-hearted, but he still thinks the whole thing was a PR stunt, the submarine, and he would not apologize for what he said on CNN. I'm not complaining about Trump. uh, Some of them, I think, I I mean, I I chuckle, you know, sleepy... Yeah, you except know, for that, they're trying to explain this I to know, your kids. I like, know, oh, I gosh, know, please. I know. Well, yeah, they don't get any of that in school. My eight-year-old doesn't. <laughs> no not, to called, no of, not to the extent of not to the extent of what you've Well, wait till you, it'll prepare them for junior high and high school. Great. Kids, okay, are, the, go kids on. are the worst. As you work. All right, as you work. Thanks, Jane. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Becky Quick's candid conversation with the CEO of video game company Activision Blizzard on his unique start in business. In the basement of a parking garage in a casino, and this guy with a pinky ring just gave us $300,000 and said, we're his family now. (laughs) We're going to (laughs) die. That's next. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Hi. Hi, Joe. Hi, Becky. Good to see you. Um, Joe, recently I got to sit down with Bobby Kotick. He's the CEO of the largest video game publisher, Activision Blizzard. He's a really interesting guy. He is rich, too. He's rich, but he's been doing this for almost 30 years. And if you think about it, um, that's a little crazy, especially in such a fast-moving industry. To be able to do that, I kind of compared it to dog years. Right. So if you've been in it for almost 30 years, you got more than 200 years experience. I remember some of the acquisitions that he orchestrated as well. Uh-huh. But, but just uh, refresh my memory. I have a, a teenager. Which games are we talking about? We're talking that- about lots of them. It's uh, things like Candy Crush has been one of the more recent ones. But they've got big uh, franchises like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. Those are the ones that they've managed to really uh, make tent poles in the organization. And they continue to roll out big new releases, and that's, that's been a really powerful part of the organization. Mm-hmm. He has been, um, he's young still, but he's been there for decades. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he started, I mean, it, it, it's a really interesting story. He, he goes into detail in this interview and talks a little bit about how he got started early on. Um, it includes Steve Wynn, who backed him very early on, I think when he was still a teenager, maybe 19, 20 years old. He was still in college at the time. So I'm trying to figure out esports and, and people watching that. You and me that. both. Yeah, I, I, and watching someone work a little controller I, I, people do it. It's huge. They show yeah. up to these stadiums. They have big screens so and you can way, see what they're doing. And by the way, he's been working with guys like Robert Kraft to build the eSports yeah. entire system kind of around the NFL, okay. the same way it's done. I asked him all these things and much more on stage at the recent CNBC Evolve event in Los Angeles, and here's that conversation. As we welcome Becky Quick and Bobby Kotick of Activision Blizzard, thank you for coming. Guys. Okay, if you guys don't know Bobby, you may not realize his story. He um, bought Activision back in 1990 and has been CEO since 1991. If you count that out, that's 28 years as the CEO of a technology and video game company. And in my view, being a CEO in technology and video games, that's kind of like dog years because things are changing so quickly. So by my math, you've been the CEO for 196 dog years. What have you done to evolve over the last two centuries in dog years? There was a moment in time where we had a very large shareholder that was a French company. And it was was my first uh, board meeting there. And they asked the same question. What is it that you've done to built to sustain and grow the business for this long period of time that uh, other video game companies have been unable to do. And um, the the chairman of the company was a terrifically charismatic guy, and he said, uh, you know, Bobby, uh, you can uh, please for me to tell those uh, board members how you make this success over this uh, long time. So I said, well... uh, you know, it's not that complicated. We are ruthless prioritizers of opportunity. We don't get distracted. We know what our business is. We find the best talent, and we make sure that we keep our talent focused and not distracted. And we really do a great job of prioritization. And, you know, that's sort of the secret to our success. And I couldn't say more than that. I left the room, and... Um, I overheard him saying, this Bobby Kotick is going to f*** us. He's going to f*** us. He's going to f*** us. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, this is my first board meeting, and this is horrible, and um, this is my new partner. So I took him aside, and I said, um, uh, Jean-René, I, I heard you, and it's really disappointing that this is how you think of me at our first board meeting. And he said, but uh, Bobby, I don't, I don't know what you're saying. And I said, well, I heard you say, this is Bobby Kotick, he's going to f*** us, he's going to f*** us. And he started laughing. He said, no, Bobby, what I was telling them is we admire your focus. We admire your focus. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's probably the best answer to how we've been successful over this 28 years is the maniacal focus. Bobby bought Activision back in 1990 for $440,000. The company now has a market capitalization of over $40 billion. Was that part of your plan when you started? I don't think I really spent a lot of time thinking about anything other than how we were going to make great games and figure out how to get the biggest audiences to actually play them. Today we have roughly 350 million customers in 190 countries. There is not a good reason why that number shouldn't be a billion in the next five years. How? When games became available on phones... 
the market exploded. And the audience size went from a few hundred million to billions of potential consumers. And so we have these great franchises that have evolved over long periods of time. Many of those franchises, though, are not on phones yet. So we launched our game Call of Duty for the first time on a mobile phone in October. In a month, we signed up 100 million consumers. In a month. And so you realize that as these franchises go from consoles and PCs to phones, the growth in the audience is going to be staggering. Where is your growth potential, both in terms of who's playing and where they're playing in, in terms of geography? So surprising statistic, but 50% of our customers are female. And so if you think about, though, where the growth is going to come from, it's every region, every geography, getting those games uh, onto mobile, the social connections that are happening between players are extraordinary. And those social connections are deepening engagement. And it's unlike any other form of entertainment or even of sport. Because if you look at sport, most spectator sports, you may have at one time played them. But they're not sports that you're going to play for the rest of your life. And what's happened in esports is the same sense of purpose and belonging and meaning that you get from sport you get in video games. But it's funny, I was doing a, a panel like, uh, like this, um, and I was sitting next to Alex Rodriguez, who was on the panel. And I just thought, I need a, a visual to explain what esports actually is. And I said, Alex, could you stand up? And for those of you who know what Alex looks like, he's like the greatest human specimen. And, and he stood Six up. Six foot ten. And I said, uh, in professional baseball, there are 1,200 of him. And then I went like this, and I said, look at me. There are a billion of me. <laughs> but I want that. I want the sense of belonging and purpose and meaning. I want to be part of a team. I want to feel like I can actually have a sense of accomplishment. I want to be celebrated for that accomplishment. And so there are way more people who can actually get that same joy, that same satisfaction from what we do than what you can see in traditional sport. When you think about your content growth, because you've got to constantly feed the beast, come up with new content, do you think of it as being extensions of these franchises that you've had out there for a very long time? Where do you think the main pipeline is going to be? You can't even consider a game a franchise unless it's durable in perpetuity. So we think of our game franchises much more like baseball, football, and basketball, that you know, the only difference is the rules can change slightly year on year, and some of the dynamics of the game can change slightly. That's the entertainment component to it. But essentially, it's the game construct. So unleash your inner rock star or unleash your inner soldier or unleash your inner wizard. And so those, those are constructs that will last forever. And then we have to create new content that keeps people engaged. So we, we perpetuate our franchises. Then we selectively introduce new ones. And then if there are categories of business that we don't think we have the skills to be able to create a game around, we may do an acquisition. But those are rare. It seems to me like the demand for content, the call for it from Wall Street and from your audience has only stepped up. Do you still feel like you have the luxury of saying we will sell no game before it's time? It's not even a luxury. It's an absolute discipline. Our responsibility is to only deliver you great content. I've been doing this for 28 years. I will be doing it for many, many more years. And 
So my view is, uh, you know, we're not going to, to make a quarter or to make a year, we're not going to compromise the quality of the experience or the responsibility to the player. You have had business leaders who have helped you along the way, and they've really been role models who have helped you in a great way. And I, Steve Wynn comes to mind. Um, how'd you meet him? What happened? Uh, Steve Wynn I met when I was 19. I, I didn't know who he was. I had never been to Las Vegas or Atlantic City. And I was sitting next to him at a charity fundraiser. I was pretty out of place at I was a kid from Roslyn, Long Island. And I found the whole thing amazingly amusing, but I was sitting next to this very charismatic guy, and he asked me what I did, and I, I told him the story. And I was a student, I was a sophomore in college, and I started a software company that made computers easier to use. And the next morning I saw him at breakfast, and he asked me a little bit more about the business, and then just out of the blue said, uh, so are you going back to Ann Arbor, where I was in school? And I said, no, I'm going to New York. And he said, well, why don't you come with me? I said, how does that work? <laughs> and he said, well, you come on my plane. And I'd never been on a private plane before. And I thought, well, it's got to be better than American Airlines. <laughs> and, um, of course, I'm focused on, like, can I get a refund for my ticket? <laughs> and so I said, okay. And I get on this plane, and we start talking. And he tells me the story of how he got started. And a mentor gave him the capital to buy Golden Nugget. And this is when he was in his 20s. But that mentor said that uh, Steve had to repay him by investing in another young entrepreneur. So he's telling me this story, and I tell him about my business. He says, so I'd like to invest. And I said, you know, I, um, I have investors. In fact, that's why I'm going to New York. My father introduced me to these professional venture capitalists, and they're investing in my business. And so I'm very grateful, but uh, thank you. I, I'm, I'm set. And I... I couldn't stop thinking about him the next day because he's a very compelling guy. And I went to my father's office the next morning with these professional venture capitalists, and I blew the deal with my father's friends. And my father, of course, thought I was an idiot. And probably in that moment I was. But I called Steve and I said, you know, I really, I, would, uh, I blew the deal with these investors. I'd love you to invest. And he said, where are you? And I told him, and he said, okay, car will be there in 15 minutes. So I go downstairs and this limo pulls up and these gorillas get out of the car two of them and said get in <laughs> and I thought what is this and my business partner who was French was my college roommate we get in this car and they drive us to the 61st street heliport in Manhattan and there's a golden nugget helicopter waiting and the gorillas say get in <laughs> I thought I've never been in a helicopter it goes with my new private plane experience. I'm starting to like this. And my business partner says, uh, I'm, I, what are we doing? And I said, we're going to go meet this investor. So we go to Atlantic City. We get driven to the basement of a parking garage at the casino. We go in and we wait three hours. And he comes out in this fancy suit with his pinky ring and perfect hair. And he says, OK, fellas, what do we do? I said, well, you know, we make software that makes computers easier to use. And he said, how much is it going to be for a prototype? And I said, $300,000. And he writes a check out for $300,000. He says, all right, we're partners, a third, a third, a third. You guys do the work. I'll raise the money. Who's hungry? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, Mr. Wynn, we, you know, we have the contracts prepared for the investors so we can have them sent over. And he says, contracts, contracts. You're my family now. And he walks out. When I look at my college roommate, and I said, all right, we're 
in the basement of a parking garage in a casino, and this guy with a pinky ring just gave us $300,000 and said, we're his family now. We're going to die. And, you know, he, he was there every step of the way. And I've been very fortunate, as you know, to have great mentors. You know, Warren Buffett has been a great mentor for a long time. And you know, so I've been very, very lucky. And I think it's one of the things that has helped me most in building the business is having the access to extraordinary people and great business people who can give you great advice about how to grow and build your business. What has been your experience as expectations for CEOs and for leadership, I think, have, have really ratcheted up. My responsibility is to make sure that our communities feel safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied and entertained. And so I don't, I don't, that, that doesn't convey to me the right to have a platform for a lot of political views, I don't think. But um, there, I think there are some business people who are incredible examples of character and integrity and principle, they do have the right to articulate views and visions and voices about government and policy and politics. And you know, I, love, I love engaging with those people. What comes next? Pushing the envelope on innovation, creating new ways that you know, fulfill our mission of bringing people together through epic entertainment. And you know, I can compete and, and communicate with someone in any country in the world any time of the day. And you start to see like the tolerance and the understanding that comes from being able to have these connections. You know, I still think we're just scratching the surface of how you bring people together. We have 350 million customers today, but you know, I, I see that number growing to a billion in the not too distant future. Bobby, it has been a pleasure, and thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.